you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Romans chapter 10, where our passage was read this morning. We are jumping back into the book of Romans. If you uh, are new with us or have been visiting over the past couple weeks, uh, you may not know because we've had some guest speakers. Uh, um, guest speakers, one, a missionary uh, that we support, and the other, uh, John, preached for us last week. Did a phenomenal job. If you haven't uh, if you weren't here for that sermon, I would encourage you to go online and, and to listen to that uh, sermon. It was great. So when I say guest, John is one of us. I consider Chris one of us, but not normal in the pulpit um, and delivered great words to us. We're going to jump back into our study uh, on the book of Romans. And so we'll be in Romans chapter 10 and be really looking at two verses this morning, 14 and 15. But I, I, I want to begin by talking about um, a burden uh, that I have. Um, a burden uh, about a temptation, I think, that all churches face. And, and so I think this is a timely message, a timely passage for us. As uh, I'm burdened, that we face this temptation head on. And the temptation that I think we need to head on is... To, to really know who we are and to know what we're about and to fight the temptation to just kind of be a nice church who does good things and kind of exists and uh, is very easily uh, lured into complacency. Uh, a church that maybe loses sight of its mission. You know, many churches in our city that we would consider Good churches, I think, sometimes get off their central task. And our central task, thankfully for me, it's, it's uh, maybe this was a note as I came here, that they, they put it in my office, and it's everywhere around the church, but it's on the wall. It's to, to know Him, to know Jesus Christ, and to make Him known. The goal, the burden of our church should be that we are a place that proclaims and sends out proclaimers to a dying world who's in need of the message of salvation that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is our goal and this should be our burden as a church. And if we're burdened in this way, we will not slip into complacency because until we are, until we are in the grave or, or, or Jesus comes again... We have a mission, and we must stay true to that mission, and we must stay true and focused on what is before us. Now, our text this morning, in, in verses 14 and 15, it emphasizes the role of the church in the proclamation of the gospel. And, and, and we're going we're gonna to look at that, and we're going to dig into that deeply. Um, and if you've been with us for a while, as we went through Romans Nine, you're going to see if you've read Romans nine and if you've read Romans ten, there is a tension uh, between these two chapters uh, that I'm completely comfortable with, and that I think the writer of uh, the book of Romans, Paul, was completely comfortable with, and I want you to be completely comfortable with. And that is, you will see is that the church has a job to do in proclaiming the message. There is a universal call of salvation that the church and that the preachers are to put out and to call. And yet, 
the decisive work of salvation, as we learned in Romans chapter 9, is God's work. And what I want you to know, and we will end with, this should give us confidence in our work. And so uh, we are going to see that uh, as we end today. So I want to just jump in and, and say, OK, where are we? And then get caught up to where we are in, in the flow of the book of Romans and then jump into our text this morning. Uh, if you remember from several, several months ago now, uh, this section, Romans chapter 9 through 11, really this is Paul. Um, uh, verse 9-6, this is kind of, I think, the summary statement of this section. Paul says, But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for there are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. It's that first clause that I think is the summary statement. And what is going on that as Paul is evangelizing and as he is sent to be the apostle to the Gentiles, one of the things that's going on is that the Israelites, the Jews, are rejecting the Messiah. And this is a big problem because if you know your Old Testament, you know that God says through Abraham, I will create a people and I, my word will go forth through them. My promises will go forth through them to the ends of the earth. And so the, the question that Paul is anticipating is that has God's word failed because the Israelites are rejecting the Messiah? And then we get 9 through 11 where Paul lays out this argument that the word of God has not failed. And, and the goal of this section, so I'm going to do something a little bit uh, not weird, but the book of Romans is packed so full of goodness that I think what I'm getting ready to do this morning is warranted and good. But the goal of this section, the argument of this section, is that Paul is, going to, is talking about that Israel is without excuse. And ultimately, what we will get into next week, what Gary will talk about next week, is that the reason they are without excuse is because they have heard the message and they have rejected the message. And so they are without excuse, even more than he had already argued that they were without excuse. So this morning, as we jump into our text, I just want you to hear the argument that flows. And there is so much of a good message that we need to hear uh, from verse 14 and 15 that I want to take some time and back away from the big argument not, not fully, it's still in sight, and to re- for us to really see uh, some of the things that Paul says in this text that we need to take note of as a church. And so here's the argument, very simple. Paul says in verse 13, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then you see Paul's burden, and so he says this. He says, how can they call, how can they call upon the name of the Lord if they haven't believed you've got to believe to be able to call upon the name of the Lord what do you have to believe verse 9 verse 9 if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved so Paul says you've got to believe that to be able to call upon the Lord and you can't believe that unless you have heard it and you cannot hear it unless somebody has been sent to preach that to you or to proclaim that to you And that preacher, that proclaimer, can't get to you unless they are sent to you. Simple logic, right? There is no tricks or word word mazes that go on through that. Very simple logic. There is a message that has to be heard in order for somebody to believe. And then when they believe, they call upon the name of the Lord. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will believe. 
be saved. Now, before we dig too far into our text this morning, or as we dig into our text, I want to define two terms. Two terms I want to define. The first one is this. The first one is this that we, um, that we find in verse 14. And how will they hear without a preacher? Now, this word uh, is an interesting word that's used here for preacher. There are two words that, is, that are normally used. And what's interesting is in Acts chapter 8, we find both of these words used in the same, uh, in the same passage. In Acts chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, here's what, here's what Luke writes. Therefore, those had been, who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, we know what he's talking about, right? Persecution had come upon the church. The Christians that were there in Jerusalem, um, the, the church at Jerusalem, the Christians, the ones that uh, in my uh, imagination, our modern day language. So if, if we were looking at this, what we, we would mean is that the church members, the fellowship, were scattered because of persecution. And as they were scattered, they went about preaching. And we know from reading the New Testament that that preaching was effective because we see pockets of believers springing up places that as missionaries and apostles go to these places that we see groups of Christians that the only explanation is from these scattered pockets. And so we've got a word here that is used by the people of the church going and preaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is in verse 5, look at verse 5 in Acts chapter 8. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, what's interesting there is that Luke uses a different word. He uses a different word for preach or to proclaim. And what we see in the New Testament is wherever this word is used, this is the same word that is used over in the book of Romans uh, in our text this morning. Whenever this book, this word is used, there's this pattern in the New Testament of it's someone that God has called out and sent for a specific purpose. So an example of this would be... um, uh, Jesus, this word is used of Jesus preaching the message. This word is used of Paul. This word is used of the apostles. And in the text in Acts, this word is used here of Peter. And so what I think our text, Paul, is telling us this morning, when he uses the word in this text, that how will they hear unless it's a preacher, I think he is talking about not just in every day, our responsibility as church members proclaiming the gospel, but what he is talking about in this text is a preacher that is sent, a proclaimer, a, a Paul, I'm going to put other words, a preacher, a pastor, a missionary. This is what I think is in mind in our modern day language. I, I think we see evidence of this in verse 8, and at the end of verse 8, that is the word of faith which... We are preaching, Paul talking about himself and the the ones with him that were set apart, that were called to preaching. So that's the first thing I want you to see is, is this word defined preacher. And it's going to become important in its application to us in a minute. The other thing that I want to define that I want you to see is that there is an emphasis here, I think, in the text on 
how can, how can he preach unless, he, unless they are sent? And I want you to notice there's an emphasis here. And, and all throughout the New Testament, we get this same emphasis on, on, on people being sent for, for work and sent out for work of the gospel. We see in Acts 13, 2, that the church laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them out onto a missionary journey. We see this everywhere. Timothy, that, that Timothy was set aside by the church and the church laid hands on him and he was sent. He was set aside for ministry. And so there is a role of the body of Christ in sending out these preachers to proclaim the gospel. This is what I want you to see in this text, because we need to understand this if we're going to dig into this text as far as we need to dig into it. Now, what I don't want you to hear this morning is this. Remember, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, with the other word for preaching, it was we all, or you all, as a good southerner would say, that we, as we go, we all have a job to do to evangelize. 1 Peter 3.15 says what? Always be ready to give an answer. Speaking to the church that we are to open our mouths, we are to evangelize. That is essential. It's our focus as a church. It is a commandment that we have, and it should be our joy to do. But that's not what I'm going to be talking about this morning. What I want you to see this morning is the role of the church in sending out proclaimers to the world to proclaim good news of good things. And, and I want to bring this all back to, by the end, of what we are to do as a church. So, I want to spend some time now looking at this phrase, at the end of verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. This is a quote um, from the book of Isaiah. And I want to give you the context that Paul, where Paul gets this quote. It's just this beautiful quotation, this beautiful context. Isaiah, as he is writing, he is, he is writing Israel uh, is in captivity. They're being, they're being held captive by Babylon. And they, they have been held captive for, for a long time. And as Isaiah is prophesying in chapter 49... Isaiah's tone shifts and he starts to speak of deliverance and he starts to speak of that the people of Israel will be set free. And, and so I want to pick up in chapter 49, I want to just read just a few passages to you to get to this quote in chapter 52. And I want you to notice some things. So first, I want you to notice in, ver in chapter 49, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Notice, notice here the promise. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He has concealed me, and He has also made me a select arrow and has hidden me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored 
in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? To raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land and to make them inherit the desolate heritages. So the first thing that we see is, is Isaiah's prophesy, as we see here, we see the promise that God will restore them. The second thing that I want you to see is who is making this promise. And this is all throughout this passage, but I want to look specifically in chapter 51, verses 12 through 16. I, even I, am He who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord your Maker? Look at this. The Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens, who laid the foundations of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as He makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor. The exile will soon be set free, and I will not die in the dungeon, and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his beard be lacking, for I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea, and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. So what we have going on is that God says, I am going to set you free. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you out of captivity. And then God tells them the reason this promise is sure is because of who he is, the almighty maker of heaven and earth. Whom nothing can compare. This is the guarantor of this promise. And then. And then we get this proclamation in chapter 52. Uh, and I want to read for you verses 1 through 10. And I want you to hear. I want you to hear the excitement. Awake, awake. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. The holy city for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord, my people went down to the down at first into Egypt to reside there. And then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. Again, the Lord declares those who rule over them howl and my name is continually blasphemed. Blasphemed all day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. 
How lovely, here's the quote, on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, and who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So this quote here, this quote, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news this idea, this imagery is an idea of, of someone who is awaiting news. And, and most common, it would be that there was a war going on or something bad was happening. There was a battle being raged and this person was waiting to hear the news. And the idea is that this person is there and gets the news that, that his side has won. And he runs into the streets and exclaims, we have done it. We have overcome. We are free. As I was thinking about this, I thought maybe a, a modern day example, and then I'm going to go to the best news of all, but a modern day example, in my mind, may be something like this. Maybe something like, you know, uh, uh, during World War II, uh, when the Jews were imprisoned in concentration camps, and I think about the horrific conditions, you know, the stories that we get is that the... the the, the awful things that were going on, that a lot of people there were wishing themselves to just go ahead and die. And I think about, I imagine, the news that came that the Allied forces had won and that these people were going to be set free. Can you think about for a moment what that news would do to you? That in a, in a moment, there's news that would take you from despairing life itself to shouting with joy. Shouts and praises. Good news of good things. Brother and sister, as great of news as that is, how much greater is the news of what God has done for us. That the gravest enemy of all, Satan, has been destroyed and defeated because God sent His Son to die on the cross to take my sin upon Him and then God raised Him from the dead so that I can have new life. Brother and sister, there is no greater news than that in the universe. So now, can you imagine, can we feel within us how beautiful are the feet of Him who brings this good news? And the good news is this. All, whoever, Jew or Greek, no matter where you've been or what you've done, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is amazing, amazing news. And I think about Paul. 
I think about Paul and how this news captivated him and how Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, was going out and how burdened he was that this news be delivered, that he had a message that needed to be delivered. And, and we even see it, we see it all throughout his writings where he says, I don't know what awaits me in the next town except for I know it's going to be hardships. We know that he was shipwrecked. We know that sometimes he even uh, despised life itself. We know that this letter in and of itself is, is of, of the book of Romans is Paul writing to Rome to get funds so that he could be sent out to complete his journey. He was burdened. He needed to go to Spain. We see in, this, in these couple of chapters, in chapter 9, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies within me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, the Israelites. And 10.1, my heart's desire, my prayer for God for them is for their salvation. So the goal of the church the passion that we should have is to know Him and to make Him known. And it is our job, it is our function as a church to be the people who are sending out proclaimers of the Gospel, who are proclaiming this good news. That are proclaiming this good news from Apison, Tennessee to Africa. <laughs> to the Sudan, as we have some missionaries who go there, to Signal Mountain. We are to be proclaimers and we are to be sending out people to proclaim this good news of what God has done, that our enemy has been defeated, that our sin can be placed on him. So what it means, church, is that this is one of our driving passions and it means that church can't be humdrum or ordinary or the work of the church isn't humdrum or ordinary or nice. The work of the church is for us to together to pull our time, our talents and our resources to be senders of the gospel message. A small example of this that doesn't quite fit, but I just want to mention it because it's on the brain, because my head is still throbbing from it this week. What's the purpose of having 100 kids here? The goal of us having 100 kids here is not to have a nice week for them to have a nice time so that maybe more will come next year so that we can boast of how many kids we have. No, the goal is that these kids are exposed to the gospel. And who knows? Who knows? The greatest miracle of all may take place in a week like we've had, and that is God opening the eyes of one of these young, young children to who he really is and that they are saved and that they spend eternity, eternity with him. It is no small thing. It is no light manner. And so we as a church should be, and we are a place that sins and proclaims. If you've been with us very long, you know that we are a people who take global missions seriously. And we need to be a people who continue to take global missions seriously. And my only point of mentioning this is to say, we don't 
do global missions or support global missionaries because it's just a nice thing to do. It is a nice thing to do. We want to support global missionaries because we know that the gospel is at stake. So our global mission team, before we support a missionary, they have to, some people wonder sometimes, why do they have to fill out all those forms? Well, we, they've got to fill out all those forms because it's important who we're sending out and supporting. Our local missions, we are supporting local entities that are not just doing good things in the community, but the gospel is a central focus to what they're doing. One of the ministries that Casey and I have, uh, Casey's more involved with than I am, is Lifeline Services. They work with children all over the world, and one of the reasons they, we love that ministry is because the gospel, they can't talk to you about their ministry without proclaiming the gospel. So as a church, we support them as... Individuals, Casey and I, support them. And in our preaching ministry as well. What we do in this pulpit, um, what we do in this pulpit is to proclaim the gospel message. These are the ministries. And we need to be a church that are sending people who are proclaiming that message. Now, I want to give you, good, I've got time. I want to give you just some characteristics of proclaimers that... uh, are, are in this text. There are more, but just some, some, some things that I want to stir around in your head. The, the first thing is this, and you may say, duh, Lewis, well, you know, but I need to say it. Proclaimers need to be willing to proclaim. Because it's an essential task. It's an essential task to the gospel going forward. What I mean by this is that the gospel message... Um, so here's the only way I can describe this. Let's say you have a person who's never heard the gospel. And let's say this person, this, is, this example gets worse and worse as it goes along, so just bear with me, I know. So don't start thinking about all the psychological damage of the person I'm talking about. Just, just bear with me. So let's say you have a person who's never heard the gospel, never heard of Jesus Christ, and was just in a room, and what they did in that room all day long is they just meditated in that room. The gospel is not just going to magically pop into existence. This is why Paul, this is why Paul was so burdened, is because what he tells us in this text is that the gospel has to be heard. The gospel has to be heard. So we have to be ascending people and we have to send people who proclaim because the gospel has to be heard. Now, some of you may say, whoa, 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 Lewis, wait a minute. When the Gideons come in, They tell us all these stories about someone being in a hotel room or being in a school and reading the word of God and they're saved and they didn't hear the gospel. Yes, they did. As they're reading the gospel, they're hearing the proclamation of the gospel from the biblical writers themselves, right? And that is great. That's why we support the Gideons because they're proclaiming God's word by getting it places. But I would say... I would say overwhelmingly, the majority of people, if if I heard your salvation experience, it would be that the gospel was heard. That somebody told you about the gospel, whether it was your parents, it was in preaching, uh, a teacher, somebody like that. 
So the gospel, so one of the characteristics of someone that we should be sending out is someone who is willing to proclaim. The second thing is that the gospel is the subject of the proclamation. We live in a day and age where standing firm on the gospel message as God's truth, as the only way to salvation, is becoming less and less and less popular. And so you have ministries. Believe it or not, I have talked with foreign missionaries who are giving their lives to go overseas, and the message they are proclaiming is simply morality. Because they don't believe the gospel. And this isn't new. As I was talking with Chris uh, Petty, who was here and he was, he was in Bolivia and he's going to the jungles of Bolivia, I was asking them about what the people in the jungles believed and he talked about um, that there were mission organizations that came into the jungle many, 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 many years ago uh, and they were very comfortable with synchronizing religions. And so you have these churches um, that have this mixture of a... Like, so Jesus and the earth God may be the same thing. Um, and so th- there's this, this, this merging of, of things. And so what I want to tell you is, what may be commonplace to us, that the proclaimer must proclaim the gospel, is becoming less and less commonplace in our society. And so we need to have this category in our heads. That a characteristic of the proclaimer is that they must proclaim the gospel. They must take sin seriously. They must teach that the only way to salvation is through Jesus. They must believe in the substitutionary atonement. That is, is that Jesus took my sin upon Him and, and, and I get His righteousness. And they must be preaching that the only way that we're made right before God is by faith in the work of Jesus. That no works can get us there. The third characteristic of a proclaimer is that he must be sent. They must be sent. That we have a responsibility as a body. You know, it's one of my prayers that we would constantly be sending our own. And one of the things I've been praying as I've been preparing this message is that maybe even some of you this morning, as you've heard this message, that the burden has grown in you strongly and that you come to us and that you say, I think the Lord may be calling me into pastoral ministry or onto the mission field and, and that we come alongside you and take you through a process and confirm that calling in you. But the missionaries must be sent. They need our support. They can't do it alone. They need our encouragement They need our prayers, they need our love, and they need our money, and they need our time. One of the things that thrills my soul is to hear from some of our missionaries, um, many of you who go and visit them on your own, not as a part of a church-sanctioned missionary trip, that you spend your own money and your own vacation time to go visit and encourage some of these missionaries. They they must be sent from us, but they also need us, And, and... Not only do they need that, they need our accountability as a church. Every year, one of the things that the global mission, I know global does this, I don't know if local does this or not, but the global mission committee uh, sends out questionnaire and gathers information from them. And, And that's our way of kind of holding them accountable to some things. But on the flip side, on the flip side, one of the things I love about how our global missions team has been structured is that the missionaries really can hold us accountable too. 
Each global missionary is assigned a person on the committee in whom they're in contact with and that they're hearing from and that they get prayers, um, uh, they're prayed for. And so that accountability must be go back and forth. We've got to be accountable to them and they need to be accountable to us. And the last thing, the last thing, the last characteristic, and there's really three in this last one, but I bound them all together because I've kind of talked about two of them and I want to kind of talked about all three of them, so I just bunched them all together. And that is the characteristic of one who is sent out. They must be joyful. They must be joyful. If they're not joyful, they don't understand the message that they've been sent to proclaim. Do you understand that? If we truly believe the message of the Bible, it's the greatest news in all the earth, it produces joy in us. And if we come across somebody who thinks they're called out to go and to be sent, and they're not joyful about that, they don't need to be sent. Not only are they to be joyful, but they also need to have a burden for the lost. And We've already talked about that, so I'm not going to touch on that much more. The last thing that I want to bring out that I do want to spend just a little bit of time on, they must have confidence. And, and, and I get these things right from this text. You may say, Lewis, where do you get it from this text? And it's just all over the pages that Paul writes that his confidence isn't in himself. His confidence is in the God who has sent him to proclaim the message. Romans chapter 9. Paul's confidence is in a sovereign God, and he believes that it is God who opens up the eyes of the heart. That gives him confidence that he can be the one to give the general call, believe. And that as he, as he is rejected, or as the message of Christ is rejected, he doesn't shrink back and quit. He keeps going. Think about the context here. The Jewish people are rejecting the Messiah and Paul is still leaning in. Think about the prophets in the Old Testament. Did the prophets come into town in the Old Testament and proclaim the word of the Lord and the people say, oh yes, revival. Sometimes, but many times, if not most of the time, what happened to the prophets? Our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ who was the greatest proclaimer of all times, was just welcomed everywhere he went, right? Everywhere he went, revival, revival, revival. No, he was rejected. His message was rejected. In this text, we see his message was rejected by his own people. And we see this with the apostles. So the, the proclaimer has to have a confidence, not in his or her own um, abilities, but in the God who has set them apart for the work that they're called to do, to proclaim the gospel. Now, to end, I want to challenge us. Church, we are senders. And... If we are senders, we have to have the same characteristics. Especially those last three. 
we have to have some of the same characteristics, maybe just talking about the last three right now, of those who we're sending. Have you lost your joy for the gospel? I'm going to step on some toes. I don't buy the excuse if someone has lost their joy for the gospel that it's the church's fault. The church can aid by singing songs that are gospel focused, by preaching messages that are gospel focused, that are encouraging one another and building relationships that are gospel focused. But if you're a believer and you've lost the joy of the gospel, that's a you and God problem. That's not me saying that you should never leave a church. There are plenty of reasons to leave a church. But what I want to say is if you are in a church that is proclaiming the gospel and singing the gospel and gospel focused and you've lost your joy, that's a you problem. And, and what I want to say is, is that this is so easy to do. You know, the world is full of false gods. It's Satan's temptation and what he is trying to uh, do to us who are believers is to try to get us to this place of joylessness. You know, vacation is a really weird thing for me. I went on vacation a couple of weeks ago and the same thing happens every time. I just always forget it. So I learned this new lesson. I so look forward to vacation and I get there and I think, oh, this is just great. And these thoughts start coming to my head. of, Man, I wish I could just vacation forever. And then what happens is I'm sitting there and I see the people who have made it. Meaning, wherever we're vacationing, they're living there. They're retired. And I'm always struck, struck by um, how joyless many of them are. In fact, many of them are angry that I'm there with my kids. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking, is the goal to be the old man living at the beach who's angry that young whippersnappers are invading their island that they want to have a bigger claim of except the fact that they want you to pay part of their mortgage. There's a whole other thing. But I think about that for a moment and I think that's never money doesn't bring you joy as a Christian. Or that joy is ceasing. Our joy as a believer is directly correlated with how we're living out our purpose. Do you understand that? If you've got a joy problem, you've got a purpose problem. Our joy as a believer is directly correlated to how we're living out our purpose. And you may say, yeah, Lewis, and I've been wondering for years what my purpose is. I've been praying, and I don't know if I should work at Chick-fil-A or McDonald's, and I know that God loves Chick-fil-A more, so I... It's not what I'm talking about. Your purpose is to know God... To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever position you're in now. No excuses. That's your purpose. And if you're not doing those things as a Christian, you're not going to experience joy. You're not. Now, the second thing, have you lost your joy? Have you lost your burden? Have you lost your burden? If you don't have a burden for the lost, then... The only reason you're going to give money 
to missions or time to missions is because you feel guilty. You know, I, I was so th- I'm so thankful for this. So I'm going to say something, Roger. I'm thankful for this. Uh, our the child we sponsor for the Haiti children's sponsorship thing. This is a great thing. And Roger thankfully sends out this email because I'm one of those people that would forget and I would be like four years in the rears and then I'd feel guilty. And so Roger sends out this email. And I had this thought. I had this thought of um, when I opened that, I'm like, oh, great. Yes, we pay yearly, so I don't have to remember monthly. But I had this thought of, are there people who open up this email and only respond out of a sense of guilt? If that's... Stepping on a lot of toes. The burden. We need to be burdened for the lost so that when we see an email like that or when we get an opportunity, when we give our money, it's out of excitement and and joy that we're giving this money so that the gospel can be proclaimed. That we believe full-heartedly in Romans 1.16 that we're not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation, where we're viewing our neighbor in this world soberly, not as the news wants us to view it, but we're viewing it soberly, that our only hope in, for, for anything in this world is to give our life over to Jesus as our Savior, because our biggest problem is not who's in office. Our biggest problem that you and I have is our sin problem. Are we viewing this world soberly? And that's our neighbor's biggest problem as well. And I think the best way the best way to recover this burden is to think often every day about the lost. That you have someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus as their savior and you're thinking and you're praying for them. There are the other another way to do this and I encourage this as well is that there are so many avenues by which um, you can get to your phone and I've mentioned this before um, people groups around the world where there are very low percentages of Christians. And they will send them to your phone and you can pray for them every single day. The other thing you can do is go through our list of missionaries and just pray for the people that they're, um, that they're around and that you pray and you shoot our missionaries an email. How can I be praying for you? And I guarantee you one of the things they're going to tell you is, hey, there's this guy that I met today. He doesn't know the Lord and I'm worried about his salvation. So think... View soberly and pray. That's how we can recover that burden. And lastly, have you lost your confidence? And this one's easy. This one is open up the word and read about our big God. Ground yourself in this big God theology. Memorize Romans 8. And you will walk away on flying high about the promises of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the work that you have done here through your servants. God, I pray that we are a place who takes um, sending seriously. God, I pray that we're a place who knows our mission, knows what, uh, what we are to do, and that we are a place that promotes and sends proclaimers of the gospel, and that we proclaim the gospel ourselves, whether it's through preaching or whether it's as we go. God, help us to be a people who not only send and give money to and time to people who are proclaiming the gospel, but God, help us also to be people who are always ready to give an answer to the hope that lies within us. 
God, I pray that you would do a miracle this morning. God, I pray if there's someone here who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that, God, you would open up the eyes of their heart and they would see you for who you are and they would accept you as their Savior. God, I pray, Lord, also that your spirit might take one this morning and you just might, may use this sermon to confirm in them that they are to be a proclaimer. Whether in the pastoral ministry or whether as a missionary, um, locally or, or across seas, God, I pray that you would increase that burden in them and that as a church we could come around them and to, uh, to help them. God, for, for everyone else, the miracle is great as well, that you would keep us focused, that you would keep us joyful, that you would keep us burdened, and that you'd keep us confident. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.